Okay, so I want to draw the young people in right from the beginning by telling you that my mother would hate my opening illustration. Uh, not, not for personal reasons. She would just think, it's not nice to talk about these things. I shouldn't like these things. So moms, I apologize. And kids, you're welcome. So pay attention. I love dinosaur movies. So, the, I mean, that's not the giant lizards running around and everyone has to fight the biggest one eventually. I mean, what's not to like about that? But one thing that I do actually like for more principled reasons about these movies is that they usually have actually a really strong sense of justice. Now, let me tell you what I mean. There's usually one really bad guy, the guy who's super greedy and willing to endanger the whole human race by unleashing a flood of dinosaurs, and he's he's just out to get the money, right? He's that slimy dude who who always betrays the heroes. And here's the thing: what what do you know is going to happen to him? <laughs> he eventually he's going to come face to face with a really big, really hungry dinosaur, and he's going to get what's coming to him. And that relates, though, to our passage in Second Thessalonians 1, because Paul he appealed to God's justice to comfort oppressed Christians. Now, before we dive into this passage, though, we, we probably should review, because we're just starting Second Thessalonians, so we're working through both epistles, first and second, and we read, though, didn't we, way back in Acts 17, of the success Paul had in ministry in Thessalonica. But his success agitated some of the local leaders, and so they started dragging Christians before the local authorities. So Paul left thinking that it was his presence there that was causing or stirring up the most trouble. They left, Paul, a good pastor, worried about these new Thessalonian Christians and how they were enduring in faith. So he sent Timothy to check on them, who returned with a good report, but also some questions for Paul, which led to Paul writing First Thessalonians to provide words of hope for these struggling believers using the themes of the doctrine of election, the imitation of godly examples, and the return of Christ to comfort them in trial. The thing is, the Thessalonian troubles did not then end. And it seems even that Paul's points in 1 Thessalonians about Christ's return may have sparked new questions in the readers. And so Paul turned to write 2 Thessalonians to provide more words of hope, now using the themes of God's justice, the imitation of godly examples, and Christ's return to comfort his readers. And so as we take up the first chapter, Paul addressed how the Thessalonians can endure despite their present difficulties. And he appealed to God's coming judgment on their oppressors as a reason for them to press ahead and find comfort. So the main point is Paul used coming judgment on God's enemies to comfort believers in trial. Paul used the coming judgment on God's enemies to comfort believers in trial. And we'll think about this in three points. A pastoral concern, a promised compensation, and a powerful comfort. 
So first, a pastoral concern. What we need to do is discover Paul's overall goals in writing this passage. What did he want to do here? And so that's our first task in, in this, well, our only task in this first point. So verses 1 to 2 contain greetings from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And just like in the previous, so I'm not going to detail all, this, this greeting is almost exactly like the one from 1 Thessalonians. So if you don't remember everything there is going on here about the Trinity and that sort of thing, I hate to do this, but maybe check my sermon on 1 Thessalonians 1. Because Paul here greets uh, the Thessalonians from the three of these people. And what he's doing there is reminding them that all of the apostolic team that had ministered in Thessalonica is still thinking about them. That's why all three of them. And so what Paul does here again, do, just to remind us briefly, is that he linked the, the two persons of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the one single source of grace. So that underscores that thorough Trinitarian view that runs throughout both of these letters. That was really wonderfully expounded this morning for us by Dr. Kelly. But as, as we think about the rest of this passage, as he really gets going, um, this is full of doctrine that was, as many others, the, the real issue is that this really theological passage was bookended with issues of pastoral concern. So, if you'll turn and read verses 3 and 4 with me. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this this opening section outlines the, the reasons, Paul's reasons, to thank God for the Thessalonians. Namely, it's note this, it's right to do so. So when God is doing something... It's right to thank him since in this particular instance, since these believers aren't just enduring, but they are even growing in faith and love. In other words, Paul rejoiced that the Thessalonian Christians were increasing in godliness. Their mutual love for one another here made that obvious. And and Paul was so glad about this sanctification that he would boast. Something Paul doesn't really do much. He would boast regarding how they remained steadfast in faith despite, and the key issue is despite their immense trials. But then if you jump with me, Paul closed this passage with another pastoral note. So we see that he opens pastoral concerns to thank God for what's happening in the churches. And then verses 11 to 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've seen Paul's thanks, and now we come to Paul's prayers for them. But, given that I've just leaped over six verses, we, we need to ask that what that opening phrase, to this end, means. What, it, what is that about? So, to what end, or, or for what purpose, was Paul praying here? Well, in all those verses that I just skipped, and we will come back to them, Paul described motivations for them to press forward, and endurance. So Paul was praying, get this, this, this is really fascinating, I think. Paul was praying for the, here, for the exact thing for which he was thankful at the beginning of our passage, that the Thessalonians would increase in faith and love, deepening in sanctification. Does that not really show that Paul intensely desired spiritual good for the Thessalonians? Because note, he's, he's not just praying for minimal perseverance, but for thriving faith. He, he wanted them not just to endure, but to prosper in the gospel. We see that clearly in the content of Paul's prayers, that he asked God to consider, now note, consider or count them worthy of his calling. So, the ESV translated this as make worthy, which entails moral transformation, which is certainly something God does in his people. But this should say count worthy in verse 11. Cause, cause if you note for five, where Paul wrote that we would be considered worthy, it's the same word, root word here. And they should, we should translate both the same as a verdict rendered about us. And so then Paul prayed further that God would Note this. I mean, this is really fascinating how Paul prays here. God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, by grace unto the glory of Christ. Notably, Paul prayed that God would bring to completion the Thessalonians' desires for good and good deeds. So here... We, we do find here that moral transformation. Paul trusted that God, despite the turmoil of their circumstances, could fulfill the Thessalonians' hope to grow in goodness and increase in good deeds. But it is emphatically, I mean repetitively, God who brings that to pass. God fulfills their hopes for sanctification. And because it was God who is God who does that, Paul prayed to that end. And the obvious question is, should we not be praying that way for one another? I mean, I'm sure we are. But it's helpful to keep that in front of us. I mean, this people, sorry, this church is full of people who do long to pursue the Lord. And he accomplished great things for his name. And so our question then is, are we trusting God to be the one who works to fulfill those desires? I mean, because sometimes I think, and I need to ask you, do you feel like you're just punching in the dark, hoping that you'll land a hit for something good? Or do we trust that God can do specific things through us that we're hoping to achieve? And so we have to remember, we're not alone 
as we pursue the Lord, and we should be praying that God himself will bring to completion our desires for good, to do good. Paul's pastoral concern was that the Thessalonians continue to grow in faith and godliness and that he was thankful and praying for them unto that end. And now what we need to do is consider the comfort that Paul wrote in verses 5 to 10 as the motivation for endurance. And that brings us to our second point, a promised compensation. Okay, so are we've oriented our this passage towards pastoral care for new Christians under oppression. And we are about to think about verses 5 to 10, which contain some really heavy theological principles. And so I'm mentioning this because we have to remember that first point as we think about this, that these are meant for comfort. This is a passage about pastoral care, and that's how Paul meant it. So namely, Paul wrote some of his most concentrated theology for practical reasons. Does that strike you? I mean, take note of that. This is going to be difficult things to think about and but Paul writes them wrote them because he wanted to see the enduring increasing faith of God's people and so we therefore have no right to dismiss more challenging theological portions of scripture since it actually is those most theologically challenging portions of scripture that were written to be of the most practical help there is a de- real connection. In other words, dense theology, I mean, it presses upon us a gigantic vision of the glorious God, and it is only contemplation and understanding of that God that will see us to the end with joyful faith. Now, I I think it may help to break this section into smaller units as we work through it, and so we're going to consider in order Verses 4 and 5, then 6 to 8, and then 9 and 10. So if you'll turn to your scripture copies of Scripture with me and read verses 4 and 5. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. We jump back to verse 4 because it it sets the discussion for everything through verse 10. Uh, So so verse 4 establishes for us that the Thessalonians remain steadfast in faith despite the fact that they are really suffering. They're being persecuted. And that... In that endurance, despite persecution, is the evidence, verse 5, of God's righteous judgment that these oppressed believers are considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing. I, I want your undivided attention on this. It is fundamental. Fundamental. I mean, do not miss this. We have to see... Paul clearly said Christian endurance is evidence 
that someone is counted worthy of God's kingdom. So he did not say that enduring makes you worthy of God's kingdom. No, here, here's the sum of that. No one gets to heaven because they persevere. Instead, when Christians persevere, it is an outward manifestation of something God has already done. Namely, worked in us, or particularly counted us righteous, justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that notion, that is the hope-filled part in which we are all reminded that as we pursue God despite our sufferings, it shows, evidences, gives proof that we already belong to God by faith. So, we can find more than that, though, in verses 6 to 8. Read that with me. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire by inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, I mean, it's obvious, I'm sure, to everyone that this is when things get heavy. And we do have to acknowledge that the Scripture teaches us difficult things. And we must learn submission to Scripture as we think about these issues. Because the final judgment is actually a topic that will reveal how much we obey Scripture and how much we invent our own religion. Because here's the thing. Did you notice that it says it is just? It's a matter of what must be done for good and righteousness. It is just that God will dispense punishment on those who afflict his people. And Paul even tells us the way that God will do this in verse 8. By using flaming fire to inflict vengeance upon those who do not know God or believe the gospel of Christ. And so there Paul cited Isaiah 66, 4 and 15 to the point that this is not arbitrary. It's not God's whimsy for those who did not believe what we believe This is justice. So now the the anecdote about dinosaur movies becomes relevant. And to show you that I'm not thinking flippantly about this, the point I want to make is the villains in those movies are so bad that, that it is obvious. We know they deserve a brutal finish. And it's supposed to, I mean, it even is, and it's supposed to be satisfying for audiences when we see those who are obviously wicked receive a devastating and humiliating end. I mean, that's that's the point of why that happens in these movies. But it is so much more difficult 
to think that way when considering people we know. Especially when we forget that those who do not know God truly are wicked and deserve vengeance. This vengeance of fire will last forever. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this verse, which cited Isaiah 2.10, is about the fearsomeness of hell. It really, it should say, the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from, it's in your footnote in the ESV, that comes from the face of the Lord. And here's the point of, of sort of stretching that out, is that sometimes Christians like to say that hell is bad because people won't relate to God there. But that's not true. People will be fully related to God in hell. But instead of being related to him in blessing, as is the case in heaven, their relationship to God in hell will be of wrath, vengeance, and torment. God is and will always be fully present in hell, and he is present there to dispense the full fury of his anger at those who have violated his law. God will be there with those in hell, and he will be destroying them forever. One reason this makes us cringe has entirely to do with our sanitized culture in the West. So most of us live in the suburbs or neighborhoods where our neighbors are at least relatively nice. And more than that, we at least vaguely think that our government and authorities will uphold justice. But we might have to think more broadly than central London. I don't, I don't usually name names and tell you who I'm thinking about, but I think it's worth it in this instance um, because knowing who this person is helps us appreciate what he's saying. So Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale, so not a backing of conservative fundamentalism by any means. But he, as an Eastern European himself, points out that we, in our first world context, don't like a violent God. But if we were to go to parts of Eastern Europe where people are used to authorities murdering family members, taking advantage forcefully of sisters and wives, daughters, if we tried to present those people with a God who is good, who would not destroy their enemies, it would make no sense to them. To, to people who have been utterly demolished by suffering, the only God who is good 
is one who will fillet their enemies for eternity. And the promised recompense is that God will oppose for all eternity those who have opposed him in life. In verse 8, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus are God's enemies. There are two applications worth making here. First, if to push us, because I know this is difficult, and I'm, and I'm actually just going to push further on that. So if you are a Christian and, and you are resisting the notion that it is good for God to punish sinners forever, who, who are you? How dare you question God's justice? Who are you to know better than he? God knows far better than you how deeply we have all shattered his law that he hardwired into us at creation as those made in his image, we, we must bring ourselves not only to submission to, but even to treasure this doctrine. Second, it is not lost on me that there may be some people in this room who are not Christians. And if you are not a Christian, then the obvious application right now is that there is no comfort in this passage for you. There is only severe warning that there is no neutral option of our relationship to God. He deals with us as friends or enemies, as reconciled or opposed. Those who do not know him and do not trust in Christ as Savior are those whom God will hate for eternity. It brings us to our third point, though. A powerful comfort. We considered how this passage is intended to bring comfort to suffering Christians. And then we thought about how Paul appealed to God's justice as the way to comfort them in whatever hardship their enemies inflicted upon them. And they can rest assured God will repay them their due recompense. And I intentionally emphasized how difficult this passage is emotionally for most of us. But now we do need to make sense of how this can be comforting even potentially to all of us. So first, I do want to address again those who might not be Christians. This passage, without a doubt, presents some very uncomfortable ideas. The Apostle Paul described a just God who will be vicious with those who reject him in this life and break his laws. But the thing is, if you are not a Christian, although this passage displays a a stark reality of what will happen to unbelievers at the last day, 
there is more to say at this point because it's not yet the last day. Just, just because now, at this moment, you might be God's enemy slated for destruction, it does not mean that you have to stay that way. I hope this passage makes you see how alienated you are from God, but also I want to offer you the opportunity to turn to Christ. Because there is an open door here as well. This destiny of destruction is only for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. The gospel is that message that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on a human nature so that He could perfectly keep God's law and die on the cross, thereby earning heaven and paying the death penalty sinners owe for breaking God's law. If you would switch sides, you could take part in these blessings. If you see your sinfulness, then go to Christ trusting that His death was for you. You will be forgiven. If you see how far from godliness you are, go to Christ now trusting that His obedience guarantees citizenship in heaven for all who have faith in Him. It does not matter. It does not matter what sin you love right now or how sinful you are at this moment. Flee to Christ now and He will forgive you. And then He will send His Holy Spirit to help you put away sin and grow you in godliness. And I think so many people reverse that order. But it's foolish to think that we might clean ourselves up before we take a shower. And so it would be foolish to try to better ourselves before we go to a Savior. And so do not delay in thinking that we must do away with some sins before we go to the one who would rescue us from them. Would you not now join God's people and then be able to find comfort in this passage? Because for the rest of us who do already trust in Jesus, we do indeed find gospel comfort in this passage. We find that God is supremely just. And that means that since, because Christ has paid for our sins, God cannot hold them against us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And further, if you are in Christ, He has earned your place in His kingdom. And He will never turn you away. We know from verse 10 that He is coming back for us. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We know that Christ will return. And He is coming to build a kingdom for us. We know that since we have believed this same apostolic testimony here written in Scripture, that we also find assurance that we will be rescued. And we 
will marvel at Christ when he returns and be glorified among the saints and him glorified among us. And so as Jesus Christ returns, whatever hasn't happened to us, been inflicted upon us in this world, not abstractly, but by wicked people, those who hate God will be stripped from the earth. But we will get to bask in the presence of our God and experience His love forever. And He guarantees us that in the Lord Christ. So let's pray. Father God, this is a solemn text of heavy things. And as we think about it, it would be difficult to imagine leaving here and not thinking about this further. And so we do ask that as your people think about these issues, that you would be tender with us, that you would prod our hearts to learn to treasure these things, and that even as we look around us and fear what is happening in the world, you would even cause us to take comfort, knowing that you are just and that you will uphold righteousness and goodness and that you will establish it in every inch of the world when Jesus Christ returns. But help us also to take this as a spur for evangelism, that we would never give up setting the truth of the gospel before those people who are perishing. Because even though we do long for justice, we long for mercy for as many as we could see have it. And we do pray for those who may not know Christ, whether they're here in this room, whether they might listen to this on audio however they might encounter this text. We pray that you would move in them to flee to the Lord Christ for salvation. Build us up in encouragement. We need it. We do at times, whether it's in the same ways or not, we do as your people feel the affliction of this world and do in fact suffer. And we pray that you would give us peace. As you have said here, it will be just to give us relief. We long and we ask for a taste of that even now before you return. And we do before your son returns. We do ask to protect your people all around this world, that you would shield them from danger. We think of those who genuinely are suffering persecution And we ask that you would guard them from the evil ones who would afflict them. And that you would bring those people who do afflict them, who do oppose them, to submission to Christ in grace. That you would cause the gospel to go forward across this entire globe in prosperity. And that the name of Jesus would be worshipped in every corner on a multitude of lips. So that you would hear your praises abounding from the face of your creation. We pray we would find comfort and solace knowing that you will do that one day. And we pray all these things 
In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.